This official podcast coverage of AusCert's 2012 conference is brought to you by Arbor Networks. Smart, available, secure. Datacom TSS. Discreet, niche, tailored. And Sophos, secured. Hey there, and welcome to this podcast from AusCert's 2012 conference. I'm Patrick Gray. The following is a complete recording of Christopher Hoff's OSCERT presentation. He is the Chief Security Architect with Juniper Networks, and uh, while he has a very heavy vendor-style background, uh, don't hold it against him, because he's got some very interesting ideas uh, around virtualization, cloud computing, and uh, even deperimeterization. He spoke about automating security at scale, uh, but where he starts off, of all things, is with a history of innovation in toilets, which, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a device in a security presentation, works surprisingly well. So here he is, Christopher Hoff, Chief Security Architect of Juniper Networks. Enjoy. All right, so uh, you can feel free to harass me on Twitter also if you like. I'd love to get your feedback. Um, this, this talk was inspired by, uh, by a, a bit of uh, research and a, a, a lot of Shiraz, so bear with me. Um, what, what's interesting about, about uh, this topic and, and the, focus, the focal point of the topic, which is really about automation and insecurity, it happens to use cloud as an example, it was uh, a, an interesting quote that I got from William Gibson from the author of Neuromancer. And he said, you know, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. But I was sitting in, um, I was sitting in Washington, D.C., and I was briefing some guys from the intelligence uh, industry, and uh, it actually occurred to me at the time that I, I, I had this quote stuck in my head based on an event that happened, that actually it's, the future's already here and it's just unevenly heated. And why I, why I thought that was funny and interesting was when I was sitting in front of these guys, I got a text from my wife. Now, you should note that the timestamp is 8.29 a.m., which is Eastern time in the U.S. My wife was 3,000 miles away in California, and it was 5.30 her time. And she texted me asking me if I could turn the heat up from her iPhone, which I just chuckled at and thought was pretty funny and I had to stop and explain why it was I was laughing in the middle of a desperately uh, boring intelligence briefing. Uh, and the reason for this was actually this device. Do you guys know what this is? Any of you? It's mostly only available in the US. It's called a Nest. One of the lead designers from the, uh, from the iPhone actually left Apple and formed, uh, built a company to build thermostats. Not exactly what you would think of in terms of the next logical progression of one's career in high tech. But this thermostat's pretty awesome. It, you, you install it in five minutes. It starts self-learning. Uh, about your environment, knows when you're around, understands how through a very intuitive interface you uh, like to adjust whether it's heating or cooling, uh, builds a profile based on um, uh, energy consumption or, and or optimal cooling, and then connects via Wi-Fi and a set of APIs to uh, an, a, a set of servers on the internet by which you can access uh, from your iPhone uh, and control the thermostat in your house 3,000 miles away. She asked for 67, I gave her 68 because I'm just that kind of guy. But the really interesting point about this, and she didn't have the app on her iPhone. That's the question I always get. Why didn't she do it herself? Well, she didn't have it. But, uh, but I thought, you know, even though this isn't about bathrooms, it was pretty close. And it was just really interesting to think about the levels of automation and interconnectedness we have uh, these days and how even more interesting the scenarios are going to get. 
Uh, and so when I thought about uh, cloud, and I, uh, I've been talking about cloud and virtualization security for about five or six years, and it started to interest me because it was stretching the boundaries of the models in which we think about securing our infrastructure, especially when our infrastructure isn't something we own or control in some cases, vis-a-vis uh, -vis public cloud. So the, my, the concern I had was that ultimately if we see all of this massive amount of automation and incredible sets of innovation around uh, workload portability, agility and flexibility, but security is stuck in a very static um, um, uh, cadence, that we're ultimately going to be that horrible uh, sticking point and speed bump that people think we could be. And I wanted to, I wanted to dwell and talk to, uh, to folks about how we can fix that problem so that we don't end up with what, what I ultimately call commode computing. But before I, before I get into the depths of security, I wanna, I wanna talk about notable moments in toiletry, uh, also known uh, as innovation and sanitation. And I'm gonna go through, uh, for the next few minutes, kind of the history of, uh, of toilets. And, and hopefully, uh, you, will, you will see why uh, this has anything at all to do with security at the end of the talk. But if you go back to the Cradle of Civilization in the Mohenjo-Daro district, uh, 2500 BC, you saw uh, a civilization that ended up uh, creating uh, tunnels, four main tunnels that evacuated sewage waste into a central drain. If we fast forward to uh, the Isle of Crete in, the, in, the, um, in uh, Kenosis, uh, you, will, you will also see that uh, they had enclosed sewer systems that they used to evacuate waste uh, from uh, their uh, cityscapes. Fast forward a little bit more, about 750 BC to uh, Rome. Uh, the Romans installed uh, in, in the Roman countryside uh, public latrines that were available for use uh, as a service. Uh, ultimately, we fast forward a little bit more. Uh, as cityscapes grew, the problem is that we then had uh, both an evacuation problem and an availability problem of, of, uh, of, san of sanitary um, uh, kind of toilets, bathrooms, restrooms. And more importantly, if you lived on the second story of uh, one of these houses, the, the way in which you got rid of waste was to kind of just throw it out the window, which was fine for you and bad for anybody that happened to be walking down below. So there was actually law passed called the Dejecti Effusive Act that made it illegal or made it a crime should you hit somebody with something you threw out the window. Only effective in the daytime, not at nighttime, but it was an interesting first application of a, of a, of a, of a legal um, jurisprudence being imposed upon uh, this notion of sanitation. If we fast forward a little bit more, uh, Emperor Augustus, uh, kind of to deal with the unsightly smell uh, and odor and sight of all this waste, uh, took the open latrines and enclosed it in something called the Cloaca Maxima, which is a gigantic above-ground sewer system covered by rocks. Pretty interesting uh, uh, when, you, when, you, when you think about uh, where, where things were in, in the scope of um, sanitation at the time. So as we fast forward, uh, there were about 150 uh, toilets around 315 AD installed around Rome. Uh, clearly, privacy was not the main, uh, <laughs> the main design criteria, but these really started to, uh, to become uh, kind of baked into um, the, the, the cityscape and, and what people expected in terms of utility from, from, from the cities and local governments. Uh, fast forward a lot. Uh, 1596, uh, Sir John Harrington invented the first flushing toilet, the, wa the, uh, the water closet it was known. That design was bettered by Brondi, who, uh, who added a valve-type uh, uh, flushing mechanism. That, in turn, was improved on and innovated on by uh, Cummings, who patented something you will notice almost in every single sink and toilet, the, uh, the S-trap, which helped evacuate waste. That design ultimately was bettered by, by Brahman, and Brahman did kind of combine all of the elements uh, that we've discussed, the S-trap, the toilet bowl, uh, the flushing uh, water closet concept, and this became the benchmark for toilet designs for about 100 years. Uh, really didn't improve much, uh, didn't change much, didn't really need to. 
Um, however, we still struggled with, as we saw the placement of these devices, uh, uh, getting rid of the waste in an efficient manner and treating it. Uh, and unfortunately, what we saw was the end result of that, thanks to things like rats and, and open, uh, open sewers, was, uh, was um, cholera in London that outbroke, uh, which was pretty terrible, killed tens of thousands of people. Uh, that, that ultimately led to another law, and ultimately led to the uh, invention of, by an American no less, uh, of toilet paper, which makes you wonder what they were doing before. Um, so how do you like to be known as the guy who invented toilet paper? Uh, probably as much as you like to be known uh, by your last name, uh, Thomas Crapper, who opened a plumbing business in London, his real name. Uh, in 1890, the first chemical precipitation sewage treatment plant was opened in Worcester, Mass. Um, not much has changed in Worcester, Mass, including the smell. I used to live about 10 miles away from there. But it was interesting because then we started talking about centralized processing of, of waste. And we started seeing a lot of improvement. Um, between 1900 and 1932, we saw about 350 uh, design patent applications with the U.S. Patent Trademark Office. Um, so kind of minor improvements. Uh, but what's interesting between 1900 and about 1990 is really where the focal point of why I'm using toilets as an analogy comes into play. So around 1990, we saw the advent of the automatic hand, uh, uh, hand dryer. We saw the, uh, the emergence of the automatic toilet flushing device on urinals. We saw the automatic uh, urinal toilet cleaner. We saw the automatic uh, soap dispenser, uh, faucet. Uh, automatic uh, hand sanitizers, automatic paper towel dispensers, using mostly infrared detection. Uh, this invention is, is pretty cool. It's the Total Neorest 6000, originally introduced around 1994. It is the king of toilets, as Ferris Bueller once said. If you can afford one, I highly recommend it. It has an automated uh, self-lifting heat, a heated seat warmer, front and rear water jets, front and rear uh, air fans, a stench evacuation system, a, uh, a foot warmer, and ultimately, um, uh, you know, the only thing it doesn't do besides flushing is, uh, well, I won't, I won't mention that, but it's a fantastic, fantastic device. Uh, this is a, one of my favorite inventions, the Yichin uh, Electronic RSS Room Reader. So if you've ever read my blog, it's a perfect use and perfect device of that. Um, Dyson, you've seen these everywhere uh, at this point, right? Stick your hands in. Uh, this, is a, this is something I think most of us could probably use, the iPod dock toilet charger. So you actually have somewhere to sit your iPod when you're sitting in the bathroom, not using your iPod, of course. Uh, this one's a little bit uh, awkward. It's the hybrid washing machine toilet. I would suggest watching out for the spin cycle. Uh, those wacky Japanese, uh, just in case, you know, you, you really got to go, and sometimes that happens. Uh, the wearable Japanese space toilet. It's actually quite discreet. I'm wearing one now. Uh, so sometimes, sometimes low-tech wins. This is Scott. They made a uh, tube-free toilet paper roll, which my wife was very happy about. But to the, the, king, the king of innovation... Uh, as it relates to, um, to invention here, again goes to the Japanese and Sega, who brought out toilets, T-O-Y-L-E-T-S. You can't really see very well from this picture, but there's a urinal, and there's a LCD screen in front of you, and, and this is an interactive game whereby it measures flow velocity and accuracy, and you compete in a networked a team event across... Uh, <laughs> now, I, I will just comment that... Um, if I catch anybody looking at my high score, uh, <laughs> we're going to have some problems. So anyway, look, the last 20 years of this point is if you look at all of this, we take it for granted. We, we take for granted that now you don't have to turn on a tap, you don't have to get a towel, you don't have to ultimately push any buttons. Things are pretty much done, they're automated. Life in the bathroom is easier. Uh, the, the point of all this is to indicate and really complain about the fact and highlight the point, why has automation in bathrooms eclipsed the automation we actually have in security. When you think of what we do operationally every day, so much of what we do, I'd say double digits that start with a nine, 
a manual. We expect people to sit there and do something at some point, look at something, react to something, interact with something. And the challenge is, when you ask yourself why, I think the majority of it is organizational and operational. When we think of what we're doing in a business, uh, whether you're an incident responder, whether you're a, a security person, whether you're, it doesn't really matter. When your role is to, is to enable the continuity and security of the business, we, we, we kind of think about this, the, how we go about doing that very differently. And what I mean is you may have security operations folks, you may have system administrators, you may have developers, and you may have network admins all trying to do the kind of make the business successful. But the tools and the operational models by which we go about it are very, very different. And so what this brings into, into, into focus is really some, some interesting issues. Accountability, uh, ultimately reliability of the systems, given the difference in tools, the different ways in which we interact with these tools and systems, and ultimately issues of efficacy. From a security perspective, when everybody is going different directions to try to accomplish the same goal, unless they're focused, harnessed, and, and interconnected in terms of both information, telemetry, the way we, we the, um, we exchange information, these sorts of issues show up. You throw in new mixtures uh, like cloud computing or heavily virtualized uh, data center infrastructures, and you end up with models that introduce completely new languages, public cloud, private cloud, hybrid cloud. You talk about new service and delivery and deployment options, infrastructure, platform, and software as a service. And we're kind of left scratching our heads as, what does this do to us operationally? What does this mean? And we start thinking then about the introduction of new technology and new paradigms for the way in which we interact with applications and data. Mobility, for example, in the case of both handsets and workloads today, completely changes the game. Security could get away with being static before because we could essentially protect things by, you know, a gazenta cable, a gazelta cable at the, hard, at the hard edge of our perimeters, and stuff didn't really move. IP address didn't change. Now it all changes, right? Everything moves. The workloads, the users, the devices. So when we think about this, I like to frame it within the concept of things we can kind of grasp today. And, and I like to um, uh, think of this as a packaging problem exercise. So if we, if we take a classical data center, and we'll, we'll talk about platform and, and, and software as a service a little bit later, but if we think of infrastructure as a service, which is basically a way of just delivering services um, at a level that allows you to take virtual machines, which are packages of operating system applications and data uh, in a nice, concise package, we're going to use this as the method for kind of discussing some of the challenges that we have as it relates to automation, and more importantly, not just challenges, but potential solutions. But I want to back up a second and think about how we got to where we are today in heavily virtualized infrastructure. You know, we started with mainframes and minis and micros, and we ended up getting to a point of, with PC of client server, but the, the level of interaction was constrained within generally a single operational um, data center. We started to interconnect them and network these devices, although kind of centrally, but then we started figuring out that we needed to interconnect them to other systems outside our, our walled gardens. And so we, we established perimeters, we put up firewalls. The challenge is that most, uh, as we've evolved over time, and the web has come into fruition, clearly now a lot of this traffic is transited over two well-known TCP ports, AD and 443. And so the reality is, unless you're looking at applications and content in context, it's very hard to make any reasonable security decisions about what it is you should, um, you should block or allow. And so what's interesting is people make the point, based on what I just said, that the perimeter is disappearing. How many of you have heard this? How many of you said it? Thousands of times we've heard about the perimeter disappearing. I actually, I, 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 I disagree with this. I don't think that the perimeter is disappearing. I think that it's multiplying, but that the diameter is collapsing. Think about that for a minute. Pretty much today, anything that has an IP address that communicates on the network is its own micro-perimeter. Right? Whether you're talking about a phone, a workload in a VM, 
uh, anything ultimately that interacts with a network and exchanges information is now being forced to have, given its distributed nature, security policies attached to it one way or another, just given the, the notion of, of where we are technologically. And so in cloud, especially in public-based cloud computing, where you have other people's infrastructure and you're placing workloads and you don't necessarily know where in terms of the infrastructure, you may be able to control geographically from an availability zone or a region or even a, um, a, a theater. The point is, not only are each one of these workloads, which are now very interconnected in more and more flat network architectures, but so are all the devices that access that data, because now they communicate to each other. And so with things like near-field communications, uh, all of the stuff we're seeing with new mobile platforms, the stuff that Mika was talking about uh, you know, 10 plus years ago as it related to mobile security threats, just balloons. Just look at your devices today. Your mobile phones ultimately have both Wi-Fi, 3G, 4G, and soon near-field communications that allow them to connect and talk to anything. So this level of interconnectedness means that when we think about policies and perimeter policies, we're going to have to start thinking about the device, the application, the workload level. So we started with individual servers that had IP addresses. We moved to heavily virtualized uh, fabrics in terms of compute network and storage. And what we've done to take advantage of scale-out architectures, which is being able to kind of spread the load out over massive amounts of cores, thanks to things like Moore's Law, is now we're able to take workloads and run them in incredibly highly dense form factors. And they just keep spreading out, and they'll take advantage of as much compute network and storage as you can throw at them. And that's getting cheaper and more available. So when we think of infrastructure, the virtual machine is now the de facto perimeter. That thing that holds my operating systems, my apps, and in some cases my data is the thing that we need to attach policy to. And that's difficult because you go from managing 10 firewalls, 10 big firewall clusters at the edge of your organization, or maybe even 100, to what could be hundreds of thousands of perimeters in terms of workloads spread out across the planet. That's a big challenge. It's a big challenge, especially if you're doing it manually without automation. So these workloads become distributed, right? They can show up pretty much anywhere that the compute network and storage uh, capabilities are made available to them. And the challenge with that is all of this workload distribution, all of this virtualization, all of what powers cloud uh, is really focused on enabling by automation this fluidity and agility. And everything that is um, in terms of workloads and VMs and applications, except for security. By design, we have not built security to scale. We've built boxes that scale up and give you lots of sessions, but the devices and the placement of these devices and how they attach and deploy policy don't. They don't scale. They weren't built for this paradigm. They weren't built to deal with distribution. They, don't, they weren't built to deal with uh, orchestration and provisioning and automation of the workloads themselves. We always expected it to be static. So you know, why, why do we have such a challenge with automation, what's what's holding us back? Why do we have such a lack of automation? Uh, we're going to kind of we're going to talk about this, especially within the context of, of some of the examples that Miko gave in his last talk. Botnets were a great example of one of the first and most successful cloud-based services that you could think of. Highly automated, centralized in some respects, distributed capabilities, the ability to rapidly provision, scale up, and scale down as needed. Really brilliant designs that have now ultimately led to the point that attackers can be very innovative, they can be, use a ton of disruption, they can be very creative, but defenders are handicapped. We don't think that way generally, we don't have the tools, we're not given permission, and in many cases we have legal issues that prevent us from taking advantage of the same sets of innovation as it, as it evolves. Um, to that point, 
it's, it's important to kind of understand why and where we are, and so I like to break things down into, into consumable chunks. So if we think about the stack, and by the stack I mean the combination of pieces that make up our compute infrastructure. We have infrastructure, compute network and storage, we have metastructure, which are a bunch of protocols that enable applications to run on infrastructure. In the case of virtualization and cloud, that metastructure layer actually creates a frictionless um, layer uh, that decouples the apps from the infrastructure so they can run anywhere. They're not hard bound to that anymore. And then sitting on top of that, we have infrastructure, which is where the actual uh, information lives. I like to think about it this way because when we think about security and tackling this point, whether it's cloud-based, whether it's regular data centers, whether it's a, just a completely physical environment, the interesting thing is if we look, about, if we look at security as, a, as an industry, as a discipline, as an operational practice, there is no discipline to our discipline. And what I mean is, even within security, the tool sets, the operational models, the things we do are very, very different. And, and so for example, if the infrastructure metastructure layer, you'll see three different, wildly different skill sets in security. You see guys that focus on storage, albeit not many of them, uh, host-based security, you know, whether that's anti-malware, antivirus, actually managing the configuration of the, of the server images themselves, uh, and then network-based security. If we go up the stack, we got people that are specifically skilled in web application or application security, which are very, very different than the people below them. And on top, you've got folks that manage and deal with data exfiltration. They, they deal with data, you know, DLP, they deal with DRM. Very different skill sets. Sometimes we try to be jack-of-all-trades and say that security is all of that. The reality is we are just as fractured and fragmented in our approach to doing this, which means that if one of these layers changes, we have a skill set gap and an operational model misalignment that makes it very difficult for us since, we were, since cloud, for example, or any of these new models thinks about automating the entire stack. If we don't, if, if we as a silo are even more siloed than the administrators that, that manage these things, it makes it very difficult to automate. So when we think about security, whether it's infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, and your accountability and responsibility and the lines of demarcation change, the notion is we think very differently about um, kind of the technology uh, demarcations based on our operational models versus how we ought to um, think about protecting the stack as a whole. And if so much of it is based on automation, and we, we focus back here on infrastructure as a service, we're still hung up on saying, well, how do I secure the network or the host or the storage? How, how, do I, how do I apply what I normally do in my enterprise to an infrastructure, which if you look into, at this stack here and the line here, we don't even control or own the infrastructure. We don't get to see the majority of it. It's, it's, it's basically abstracted and presented up to us as a standard set of interfaces via APIs that we write to. That's a completely different model. So what's funny is people, when we talk about cloud computing, they say, I won't, we, we, can't move to the, we can't move to the cloud. There's, there's no way that I can, I would never put my data in the hands of other people. And the interesting thing is, they, they, when you ask why, in many cases, the, the discussion t uh, tends towards the fact that, you know, we don't have enough security uh, in cloud computing. And I argue that that's actually a false assertion. I argue that not only do we have uh, a, a ton, in, in case, uh, in case somebody is trying to apply a metric, a metric ton of, of security, we actually have too much of it, not, not, not a little bit. And what I mean by, so if you look at this as a cloud provider, they have hardware stacks that selfishly uh, maximize availability of their platform, but all these bubbles are things like WAF, DLP, AV, firewall, IPS, VPN. And those are physical hard, pieces of hardware that exist in the cloud provider's network that you may never see. They have a layer of software atop this that may actually replicate this capability but be distributed, may not be exposed to you, the consumer, but that it's there. Then, strangely enough, the consumer, who basically doesn't see any of this, deploys in many cases the similar sets of capabilities that exist below the stack, but they're completely invisible to one another. 
Meaning, if the infrastructure layer comes under attack, the application layer and what you put in your guest may not even know about it and vice versa. The interesting thing is all of this security exists, but it's fragmented, it's not interconnected, it doesn't talk to anything out, outside of its own domain. The good news is with cloud, what we need is, is what we're starting to see develop is, is, is programmatic capabilities made uh, available to us by APIs at these layers. So the cloud providers are starting to export API capabilities and functionality that abstract what you can do and see, but at least let you interact, which gives us the opportunity to have infrastructure start to talk to applications and vice versa. It doesn't mean it has to control it, but the ability to tell me, for example, my application, that, my, that uh, the infrastructure beneath it is under attack and perhaps you should move, because you may see degraded service is very important. Or more importantly, if somebody's attacking something at the, at the application layer, signaling the infrastructure to ultimately say, can you block this upstream, would be very valuable. It's not like we don't have the capability or technology or understanding of what it would take to get there before we have, without, without uh, the widespread use of APIs, which are still pretty platform dependent, however, we, we didn't have the capability. But today we're starting to see the beginnings and the birth of a new set of way of interacting with security infrastructure. Via, via the API. So the, the important questions are setting the, having set the stage for you know, what is, what's starting to happen now and why we are where we are operationally organizationally is, is, is kind of the questions of how do we get there. So step one is you can't just sit there. It's not going to automate itself. Ultimately, you have to start thinking about how you take what you do today and focus on the things that matter most by getting rid of the low-hanging fruit by automation. There's a ton of capability to do that. You still, on the other hand, have to do the hard stuff. If you look at infrastructure as a service, you still have to build survivable systems and architecture. You have to understand how the infrastructure as a service provider functions so that should you hit a snag, should they come under attack, you can take advantage of what failover capabilities they have or don't have to deal with, uh, with, with the repercussions. You still have to build survivable architectures. You still have to build secure uh, applications. And you still have to harden the operating system and secure your data. That doesn't go away. What, what does change and is radically different is the way in which you have to do that. And if you expect, and this is where most people fall down, where they look to a cloud provider and say, you should do this for me for free, that's where this model really breaks down. Because in many cases, all you're doing is squeezing the balloon. You're transferring not necessarily uh, accountability or responsibility, but the way in which you interact with securing these systems uh, from one platform to another. So step two is a very interesting one, a little contentious and difficult for people to grasp. But step two is you have to accept and move on from the fact that the enterprise, the classical enterprise DMZ design pattern is dead. If you think firewall, screening router, subnet with a bunch of exter externally exposed hosts that are then through a firewall rule set enabled to talk to something internally, and you think about how that matches to a flat network cloud-based collection of VMs attached directly to the internet, that's a wildly different model. And, and so what's interesting about it is if, if you look at Amazon Web Services, which is quite frankly short of different security zones you can apply basic ACLs to a flat interconnected network, they make it look like it's very tree-like and hierarchical. This is to give you comfort. This is to give you a, a sense of familiarity. You know, you've got a load balancer, a router, you've got some web servers, another load balancer, some app servers, some databases. Conceptually, it looks like this, but programmatically, it's very different, especially if you're starting to build and design at scale, because so much more of the classical infrastructure is pushed up into the application layer. You see the development of completely new tool sets like in, in database structures, like Mongo, you see Cassandra, you see all sorts of new um, methods by which people are interfacing and interacting with the application layers. 
And so, again, the model has really evolved from this very hierarchical tree-based structure that we easily can carve out DMZs to uh, things like what VMware presented in virtualizing tier one applications. So you have all three or four of these tiers collapsed into a single virtualized cluster with virtualized firewalls. This model is very interesting. This is, this is kind of where, what you get when you climb up the stack to platform as a service where you have crazy new terms like you know, worker roles and message buses. And people say, well, in this programmatic diagram that represents my network, how do I install a, a firewall? It's like, you don't. And that's the, that's, the, that's the point. That's the problem. Code has become infrastructure. And so the way in which we think about securing infrastructure has to be very code-like. And again, going back to the model I talked about earlier, everything is now its own micro-perimeter, which makes the challenge one of scale and one that can already be solved by automation. So step three is you don't have to do it all yourself. There are lots of brokers and folks that can help you via tool sets and or services get you from point A to point B. And Stratus and RightScale, for example, kind of act as brokers on your behalf to allow you to deploy to multiple clouds and attach policies, format them, and secure them for different cloud providers. Uh, Dome 9 and Cloud Passage allow you to do massively distributed host-based firewall table management since you can't plug a firewall in as you normally would in some of these environments. You've got Cloudflare and Clause and Expose have adapted classical services to a cloud model that lets you get from point A to point B in terms of migration. But all of these change the ways in which we interact with our security tools. And a lot of times this comes down to kind of looking at vendors and saying, who should be delivering security to me? The cloud provider, the tool set provider, the network provider, me? Uh, quite frankly, it's a combination of all of the above. Which is funny if you go back to the comment where I, I made before where people say, well, we don't have enough security. You have tons. You just don't know how to necessarily implement it. And a lot of the stuff isn't mature enough yet for you to be able to cleanly take the model that we use today and map it to cloud. So the other thing that has to happen is as much, of, as much of what we do in the security space is reliant upon being CLI junkies, SSHing into a device, or using a, a, web, a web GUI over SSL, the reality is much, much more of our infrastructure needs to be programmatic, which means that we have to start thinking about managing things via APIs. That's a whole nother uh, interesting space. A lot of security folks can't even spell XML, let alone what a restful, what, 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 you know, rest and soap look like and how we ought to secure it and understand how now instead of, you know, doing SSH commands to a CLI is different than actually managing and sending uh, XML based uh, API calls to a set of infrastructure. It's just, it's a completely different model. But you have to start thinking about what that means. You have to start thinking about taking advantage of the same sets of languages and scripts that developers are using to build and deploy the code to deploy your, your, your uh, security solutions. So in many cases, if you don't know what CF Engine is or Puppet or Chef, you don't know how to code in Python or even uh, PowerShell, the reality is that this, these are tools and languages that the developers can now slap down a credit card and for $3 go and, and buy multi-multi-gigabits uh, and, and uh, uh, huge amounts of processing power um, outside of your visibility and control. So, and the reason they do that is in many cases, if we told them, that, if they told us that they wanted to do this in Amazon Web Services, we would say no, so they go do it anyway. And because we don't understand the infrastructure or the landscape, because we don't do this stuff generally, we're, we're, in, a, we're in, a, um, in, a, in a spinning hamster wheel. And, and if you recognize ultimately that the network itself to which so much security is attached, we are so topologically sensitive, meaning topology and the network configuration means so much into where we inject and be able to, to, to uh, actually position security capabilities that, if, that, that the network itself is evolving now to be so much more of a combination of virtual infrastructure 
and physical, still pretty much separated, not very well integrated, but what we're seeing is a separation of control and data planes. We're seeing new protocols like OpenFlow, which separates not only control and data plane, but the ability for uh, adding new service layers incredibly quickly, including security, mind you. And what this means is if the network is now becoming programmable, we're again the last holdout in this space because we're not interacting and thinking about rapidly and from an automated perspective deploying security capabilities as quickly as the network and the virtualization and cloud platforms can. So programmability is huge, um, both from uh, an automation perspective uh, from machine to machine, but human to human, um, but also being able to satisfy uh, audit and compliance. So if we can't keep up with being able to uh, taken uh, and snapshot and understanding what the network looks like and where we are at risk, both from a threat, vulnerability, and risk management perspective, this becomes incredibly problem problematic. Uh, I created a project called Cloud Audit that I moved under the Cloud Security Alliance, which is basically a way of automating and standardizing the way in which we exchange information so that you can use either automated tools or a web browser if you're a human to quickly, as a near term, gain the understanding of the um, both the assertions uh, and current status as it relates to certain configuration audit and compliance um, uh, data points uh, around these cloud networks. Kind of ahead of its time, we created about two years ago, but we're starting to see a lot of interest by the tool set vendors, the cloud providers, audit bodies, and customers in being able to get this data as quickly as possible. Because this model, where somebody runs around with a checklist and tells us we can't do things, even when we try to, because I know we're handcuffed there from an industry perspective, this doesn't scale either. And they're rapidly, the compliance and regulatory agencies are rapidly trying to, uh, to change their behavior. Um, this is a huge piece. Uh, it goes without saying that the, um, there, there's not a lot of love lost between developers and uh, security folks. And in many cases, uh, we see them as the enemy, uh, right? They are now the new kingmakers. They, they, they talk about the value they bring to the business by being able to save hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars a year by just taking these applications and rolling code uh, on, a, on an amazingly high, uh, and highly uh, um, uh, accelerated rate to these services so they can be very responsive to the business. Security ultimately, um, when it tries to inject uh, the, the needs, even legal needs, uh, on top of that becomes that giant speed bump. The interesting thing is if you look at folks like Etsy or Google or Zynga or Facebook, they roll code changes into production or Netflix, they roll code changes into production directly via developers dozens if not hundreds of times a day. So the developer pushes a button and rolls code. No security team involvement. They don't look over the shoulder and do a six-month audit. They push a button. And when it breaks, they roll it back, or the developer gets an email and he fixes it. That's a wildly different model. And if you think, well, we're never going to get there, that's not going to happen to us, the problem is we won't prepare for what it means when this new model does show up. And it will, because it already is. As Miko said, uh, as dinosaurs, uh, we're, we're going we're to die out. And this next generation of folks, much like our kids who just expect, I mean, my, my one-year-old, much like a, a funny thing I saw on YouTube, does the same thing. She goes to a magazine and tries to do this to the pictures. Because she knows what, all she knows is an iPad, right? She knows how to flick. She's one year, one year old. So this new generation of security folks who are really kind of classically trained developers who start thinking about what it means from a security perspective are going to start doing things very differently than we are. So application, uh, application security and SDLC is huge, right? Developers traditionally in, in the existing generation don't necessarily make good security folks, and security folks sure as hell don't make good developers. But the problem is that now as we push this stuff up the stack, um, application security is enormous. 
So that means we not only have to start thinking about how we, from a new perspective, protect our applications, but also then how we automate data protection. And we've seen the advent and the maturation of technologies. As much as we hate things like DRM and even things like DLP, the ability to prototype and understand and profile, as Miko was talking about, usage of applications and data, and even make use of existing tool sets like encryption that ultimately expire. It's like that Maxwell, you know, the Maxwell Smart or the, uh, or the um, Mission Impossible, this data will self-destruct in 10 seconds kind of a thing. Those capabilities are starting to show up because if we're putting data and distributing it, you may not care that it's out there so long as it's protected from, um, from uh, against misuse. Um, however, this is not an easy problem, especially when you're talking about data that already exists before you can apply the controls. But this, we have two sets today, and Rich Mogul, who was an ex-Gartner analyst and I have been done, doing a talk for the last six years, where we, where we kind of profile new and rapidly emerging technologies, and we're seeing huge amounts of progress both in the application layer and the data and the information layer now in terms of new ways uh, of, of looking at protecting apps and data. So not only things just like intrusion detection or intrusion prevention, but things like intrusion deception, looking at using honey netting and honey potting capabilities um, to, to, to do things with technology that's been around for a while but just hasn't been very mature. Now all these points are great, but usually the first thing that comes to, to, comes to bear in a discussion is, is what about the dark side? And there is a dark side of, of automation. And I'll give you a couple of non-infosec examples. Uh, remember the Whopper in War Games, right? Went completely apeshit, was gonna blow up the world with World War III in a simulation. Uh, we saw uh, the Airbus 380 failure, huge levels of cascading automation failure. Th thank goodness there were five pilots or six pilots on board who were able to take every cascading automation failure and um, do a better job. But we also saw um, an, 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 an illustration where that didn't work and hundreds of people died. Um, ultimately, the AWS uh, EBS outage, they had a problem with a route that got pushed wrong in a normal process that basically sent things replicating for hours and hours and hours until they could fix the automation cycle and stop it. Or the flash crash, which is a high-frequency trading uh, system that actually caused the stock market to completely tank based on machines gone wild. Right. So yes, there are interesting and relevant examples of automation, but what this means is that, the, uh, that ultimately appropriate checklists and checkpoints weren't put in place to help deal with cascading failure domains. You only do that by learning. You only do that by failing. And so in many cases, that's part of the challenge here, is we're not rewarded for failure in the security industry, clearly. But um, this new generation of companies, the ones I named, Netflix and Zynga, um, they have processes like the, the Chaos Monkey. The Chaos Monkey is an automated set of tools that, well, in Netflix's example, randomly goes and breaks things and shuts stuff down to see how the system responds and how the people that manage those systems respond. Most of us, if we said, oh, I'm just gonna run a bash script and shut down 20% of the firewalls tomorrow, we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> probably not a good cultural or career move, but, this is a mind shift in the way in which we think about how automation can actually help, both from the, from the uh, um, uh, failure perspective, but also from the recovery perspective. So how do we, how do we get there in the last couple of minutes? And this slide is, a wor is word salad, but I want you to have it when you get the presentation so you can kind of read it in depth later. But the point here is we really have to think differently about what would you, what would you do if you took your most important asset and dumped it directly on the internet today? How would your security model change? Because that's exactly what you get in public-based infrastructure as a service cloud. You would do things differently. 
Uh, ultimately, how do you get traffic that's in one layer tier, if you want to call it that, to another? We really have to start thinking about how traffic, st uh, traffic steering and service insertion works. And in many cases, it's not at the infrastructure layer. It's actually at the application layer. We have to start standardizing on open standards and telemetry that allow these application layers to intercommunicate. It's really stupid, in the, in, 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 given the, where we are today, that if I ask five security vendors to go to a whiteboard and draw how I instantiate um, a five-tuple ACL, give me the syntactical representation, a five-tuple ACL, something I've been doing for 30 years, five different languages, different ways of doing. That's stupid. Right? We should have one way of instantiating a five-tuple ACL, regardless of what the southbound mechanisms are for doing that. With APIs, you can use a standardized way of saying instantiate ACL, and that's exactly what folks like Zynga and Netflix do. They write their security constructs in a basic formative uh, model that allows them to call security via API. Install ACL parens parameters. Very, very different. Right? Um, that intelligence needs to be shared between the application infrastructure layers. It's, it's amazing to me that infrastructure can be under attack and the apps not know about it and vice versa. We have the capabilities. We have standards like uh, IFMAP. We have RFCs. We know how to do this. We have things like CVS, CVID. We know how to exchange information about vulnerability and threat. It's silly that we don't. In many cases, if you look at infrastructure as a service in the VM model, you are made now to push more and more security back to the models of the 1990s, which means you're pushing more stuff back into the guest operating system because you can't deploy a network-based solution as flexibly, easily, or it doesn't scale as well. So what that means is I've gone from those 10 firewalls to potentially hundreds or hundreds of thousands of nodes, and I have to manage IP chains and IP tables or anti-malware, or WAFs on guests and hosts. This, this means that you should leverage it where you must, but take advantage of hypervisor and cloud platform security capabilities and demand that they expose some of these capabilities to you, at least from being able to understand uh, and garner um, uh, intelligence as to what's going on. And ultimately leverage the intermediary of virtualized and cloud delivery security as a service models. In many cases, you could host your security in a data center or in the cloud, and those accessing it can be pushed through services that either cleanse data or act as wildly uh, distributed, heavily uh, high-performance um, uh, security layers for you. So Cloudflare, if you've used their services, does this. They even do it for free. They sit in front of your web servers, and they do things like site acceleration and security capabilities on your behalf, you, and you armor and harden your systems on the back end. These are examples given the tool sets I talked about before and the approaches that we really need to think about. So to really leverage and take advantage of cloud virtualization, we have to have security scaling at the same speed with the same agility as the workloads that, uh, that ultimately they're meant to protect. Uh, if we don't start thinking about this, and I know in many cases we're drugged down and focused on our day-to-day -day operations, but if you could spend your time doing things that matter most versus dealing with stupid IDS alerts that are false positives, or ultimately anti-malware uh, things that, 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 that are irrelevant as it relates to protecting the things that matter most to you. If you could use automation to benefit what you do on a daily basis, whether it's in cloud or in your own data centers, we could start making progress. We could start focusing on the things that matter most. Incident response and ultimately incident prevention could, could, could be years ahead of where it is today, if we can get out of doing things statically and expecting the meat cloud, us, to be the thing that does most of the work. So ultimately, thanks very, very much. I, I, I know this was a bit of a fire hose. I hope you will take uh, and look at some of the tools that I talked about and think differently about how you might adopt your models 
to leverage automation, experiment with cloud. It takes a credit card and three bucks if you want to go get an Amazon account to figure out if you were to take what you did today, one of your apps that you just deployed and how it would look differently in Amazon, instead of just kind of throwing up your hands or covering your eyes or rocking in the fetal position like that, that lady in that Mac video, think about what you would do differently and what tools and how you could automate this and how ultimately uh, you, you can do your job more efficiently. Thanks very much for your attention.